Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic with the Square Ball. Dan Moylan here with you from the Square Ball with Phil Hay from The Athletic. Uh, is home in York. Uh, you can read all Phil's post-match reaction stuff to the nil-nil draw against Brentford uh, on The Athletic. Sign up at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. New Year's offer on there. Morning to you, Phil. You're right then. What did you make of that then? Um, an exciting nil-niller? Is that the best way to sell it? Good morning. Yes, it developed into that. Uh, the the scoreline at the end of the game, I think, was rather what I was expecting at half time. The way the first half had played out, even though we said beforehand there'll be goals in this game, because there always seemed to be goals between Leeds and Brentford. And we said there'd be plenty of niggle and there was a bit, but, you know, not so much. And and after the game, you had Thomas Frank actually being pretty complimentary about Leeds, saying they were difficult to, to play against. I sort of noted that because I've heard that from a few coaches, a few managers um, over the months when Marsh has been in charge. And I think you've got this sort of juxtaposition with this Leeds team that they can look soft and they can look vulnerable in certain situations and they do concede goals. But actually, when you hear other managers and coaches talking about them, they don't describe them as a side who they find particularly easy to play against or, or particularly easy to beat. And and Frank Frank's attitude yesterday was that he, he didn't feel Brentford had played well or, or had been in the game enough. And on that basis, he was very, very happy to get out with a point. You know, I think there was a lot of pragmatism, actually, in the way that they played and, and realising that the game had tilted in Leeds' balance, certainly in the second half, and that a draw would, would be good for them. I thought Leeds deserved more from it by the end of the game. Defensively, much better yesterday. And I think we, we'll chat about Max Verber. I, I do think he made a big difference to that. The problem for them was that they weren't cutting through enough up front. And I think for all that they had really dominant spells and for all that there were chances, you know, particularly for Rodrigo and Nonto in the second half, they were lacking the killer ball. They were lacking that that bit of craft, that bit of quality right at the end of the their attacking moves. And I'm not totally convinced that they did enough on an attacking front to to have won that game yesterday. But I think it's fair to say that if anybody was going to win that, um, it was going to be Leeds because they had far more of it. And what did you make to the trying to force the ball through the middle? Um, I mean, we've seen the uh, the picture that was uh, photographed. And it's in, you've mentioned it in your article, actually, um, following on from Brentford. The, the photo of the eight bullet points that the Leeds team um, have yeah. pinned up in the dressing room, how to approach games. And it mentions in there minimal width. And you saw it very much in evidence with, with Leeds yesterday trying to force the ball through the middle um, through two banks of three of Brentford sat in there in the middle, plus the fullbacks as well. So you've got a defensive block of eight that you're trying to get through. Well, I think one of the things I noticed yesterday before half time was the extent to which Leeds were gravitating towards the left side in big numbers. And I had a look at Opta stats and at the graphics, and obviously this is no use for anybody listening because they won't be able to see it visually, but it was very apparent um, that there was a, a kind of imbalance of 
bodies swerving towards the left. Everything seemed to be going through Nonto on that side. You almost had Harrison and him playing in, in what felt a little bit like the same position, although Harrison was kind of used more, more centrally um, in theory yesterday. Um, it balanced out slightly more in the second half, but it's an old discussion, isn't it? The width of the team, the fact that Leeds do play in this narrow uh, narrow formation, narrow design. And yeah, the bullet points on on the wall, I, I was sent that a couple of weeks ago by somebody who'd been on a stadium tour. And, and it was, I think it's fair to say, a breakdown of the way that Marsh sees football and the way that he wants his team to play. So talking about, yes, you know, minimal width, um, but they added to that, you know, playing vertically, counter-pressing um, as well. And I think a lot of people would say, and, and I kind of feel this as well, that it can the, the, the collection of bodies in the centre of the pitch can be a hindrance when it comes to that killer pass that you need, you know, that moment of finesse and that that moment of, of I guess, perfection or, or accuracy that gets you in behind and, and creates, creates clear chances. Because they had a lot of pressure yesterday, Leeds, and were in a lot of good positions out wide, but weren't able to deliver anything um, into the centre of the box. What you see though is that whereas where they do get into wide positions when the pressure's on and, and they're you know they're pressing forward um and, and have a team pinned in in the way that they did with Brentford, as the attacks build from the back, there isn't great width out wide, it is all all central. And that is clearly what Marsh wants. You know, that's the, the tactical approach that he's going for. As I say, I, I think that I think they were slightly shortchanged yesterday in the way that I felt they were shortchanged at Villa as well. And and if we, if we kind of disregard the Cardiff game in the middle of the week because it was cup game against a you know a fairly poor championship side very dominant and and deserved win but you know championship side nonetheless i do think in isolation the villa game and the brentford game have shown more dominance and generally speaking more control i i get that the goals conceded that villa were were not great especially the first one but they had Villa, I think, where they wanted them for a lot of that game. Um, Villa weren't able to play it very easily. Brentford had the same problem yesterday. So when Marsh says that he feels like there's momentum building, he can feel like there are better things around the corner, I kind of understand why he's saying that, but I still feel like we're in that zone at the moment where wins have got to got to start coming. They're not, they're not winning enough at the moment. They're, they're not turning the better performances um, into enough points. But I think they will feel that from Villa and Brentford, you know, one point from those two matches, they'll they'll feel hard done by um, with that return. I touched on a similar point on our post-match show, the match ball um, after the game yesterday afternoon, saying that if that performance had come in September, you would have gone, ah, oh, yeah, decent Premier League, clash that. But as it is, that yes. kind of added urgency is there now with the need to get wins on the board. I think it is. And if it was in September, you would probably spend more time focusing on what was a, a really, really good defensive performance. I mean, I, I've seen, I've watched a, a fair amount of Brentford, so it's not a surprise to see them going direct towards Tony and Mbwemo because they do do that a fair amount. But I didn't expect them to do it quite as much yesterday as they did. And actually that put a lot of pressure on Verber and Robin Koch, the centre-back pair. And I thought they dealt with that really well throughout the game. It wasn't that Brentford had absolutely no chances but Tony didn't have much of a sniff at all, you know, as a as a goal scorer until the, the header towards the end of the game, which he he put wide. And I thought that that part of the team, that that area of it, the preparation that had gone into dealing with Tony in particular worked. You know, it, it, it obviously fell into place. And you're right. You know, if this was in the midst of a good run of form and if it was earlier in the season when the, the pressure wasn't kind of building in the way that it has, 
you would probably sit back from that and say, actually, there's quite a lot to take from that game um, and to feel to feel optimistic, certainly defensively. I mean, I wrote on Saturday about the problems that Leeds have been having at the back and why those problems are developing. And you do see a pattern of a team who are susceptible, very susceptible to chances created um, via counter-attacks or fast breaks, as, as Opta would term it. And also a team who are very, very susceptible, more so than anybody else in the division, at giving away really big chances, you know, high-quality opportunities. And set against that, it's totally understandable why it is that Leeds have a, a fairly poor defensive record. But it was much better yesterday. And I don't think there's any doubt that it was better in part and in no small part because of um, the role that Verba played and because of the standard of his performance. He was quietly excellent, wasn't he? His anticipation and his timing yeah. were the two standout things for me. Yeah, both on the ball and, and off it. Um, he was very good at reading the play. And I'd I'd noticed that in previous performances. The, the period where he was on the pitch against Cardiff, and again, you know, inferior opposition to Brentford. But his positioning was good. He, he was sensible yesterday when it came to knowing how much space to give Tony, to give him Buemo, you know, how tight to get to them whether or not to give them the leeway of having a little bit of room to stop him, you know, getting done for pace by either of them. But also he, he was very good at stepping up for interceptions, very good at bringing the ball out. Um, looked to me like, and, and you, you can notice as well, communication, which I think is something that Leeds always need at the back. Looked to me like a really, really good all-round defender. And that, you know, for a full Premier League debut, his first start in the Premier League, it was a difficult game yesterday because... Brentford were bombing direct balls um, towards the edge of Leeds' box. You know, Tony is one of those players who can just fight all day with you. Um, really confident footballer who'll go and go and go. And without any doubt, the centre-backs won that tussle. In the same way as I actually felt that over the course of the 90 minutes, Ailing probably had the better of Rico Henry um, on that side of the pitch, which, you know, was again a, a, a contest that Leeds had to win and had to edge if, if they were going to take anything from the game. I think... In the end, you came away feeling that, that Tony hadn't had much from that game at all, hadn't really had a sniff. Well, that brings me on to the right-hand side. You mentioned in, um, Luke Ailing there, because you said a lot of the play gravitated towards the left. What did you make of the right, um, Ailing and Aronson? Been saying for a couple of weeks now, it's, it's Aronson almost just needs to take it out of the firing line a little bit now, doesn't he? Have a little rest, go away, recharge your batteries and come at it again. The Marsh felt that he played well yesterday. I, I thought on the ball it was a, a bit of a struggle for him again, and he is des- he is definitely grasping for a bit of form at the moment. Energy-wise, though, and his pressing against Brentford, I thought was really good. Mm. You know, I I thought it was decent and I thought actually Leeds were pretty good at, at um, turning the screw on Brentford in that sense. You might be right. It might be that he's at the point where he needs a breather. I wonder, and I was chatting to somebody else about this and talking about the first summer Jack Harrison had after his um, initial season at Leeds on loan from Manchester City. He went to the States um, He he put himself through a big fitness plan over there to kind of bulk up and, and get stronger. And you wonder with Aronson whether or not he's going to have to develop a bit physically, whether that's something that will help him over time. Because it is, you know, you don't get a lot of leeway in this division and and it, you know, the the, the kind of cut and thrust of it is pretty intense all the time. Um, so I felt that, I, I did think that his work off the ball was decent, actually. I thought I thought it was good. But I think in terms of the influence he's having in the play, the, the actual play when leads are on the ball, I think it could be better, um, with no doubt. And he's been, you know, he's been in the team a lot. Marsh has, has tried hard to to keep faith with him. And what you say might be might be spot on. You know, a little breather might be might be for the best. And it's not as if Leeds don't have the players to do that. I think the the hope was that 
Somerville will be back training this week. They've obviously got Ruta, who didn't play at all yesterday. They have got options. It's not as if Marsh can't mix it up. And what about Luke Ayling behind him? I thought he had a good game, Luke Ayling. You're saying that the battle with, with Rico Henry, there was a point in that, I think it was the second half, when Luke Ayling stepped away from Rico Henry. And if he hadn't got in and anticipated and cut out a ball, it would have left Henry in acres of space behind him. But he got in there and made it. I think there's kind of a, a huge sigh of relief that went up around uh, Ellen Road when he did make it. When Marsh was asked about Brentford in his press conference beforehand, he was talking about the way in which they can sort of play possum for quite a while and then just pick the moment to hit you. And that's totally reliant on people like Rico Henry or Tony, you know, coming up with big moments in, in a flash and, and suddenly you one nil down. There was a point in the second half, right towards the end of the second half, where Brentford so nearly got in with a counter-attack. It, all it needed was a ball from Wissa to Tony, and Tony probably sticks that away, and suddenly the scoreline in the game and the, and the whole day looks looks very different. But no, I, I agree with you. I thought Ailing had a, had a good game against Henry, and he had to, you know, if, if Henry, I've seen Henry do damage to teams before. If, if, he, if he gets the free run of that wing, then he will, he'll, he'll hurt you down there, and he will supply the sort of service that Tony and Mbwemo and, and others are just dying to, to feed on. So defensively, much, much better, um, without a question. And did actually did actually address and negate a lot of the things that have been costing Leeds this season. It felt to me like we mostly restricted them to speculative balls over the top. I thought we did pretty well in terms of um, cutting off supply lines. Yeah, and I guess we should talk a little as well about the amount last week that Mars was talking about the you know the commitment and the unity and the, I guess the loyalty of his, his dressing room as well. It was... A slightly odd discussion because as far as any of us could tell, the, the story of senior players losing faith in him and and I think the way it was put was, you know, essentially looking for him to be sacked, seemed to appear on a supporters website and, and didn't gain an awful lot of traction in the UK at all. And I was a little bit surprised that, that Marsh spoke so much about it on that basis, although he did say on Friday that it had made it into the Austrian press. And obviously he worked at Salzburg and somebody that he knows in Austria had made him aware of the fact that it was being written about over there, you know, that the, the, the line of you know, Marsh has, has lost lost the dressing room. Um, I, I felt like the performance yesterday was pretty much vindicated what he was saying. You know, I didn't watch that yesterday and see players who've down tools or players who are lacking any commitment or players who aren't trying hard to make it work. You know, I think they they are trying to make the best of this and they are trying to make it happen. And, you know, the, the line that Marsh is given at the moment is that they think they're about to turn the corner as well. But results are going to dictate that now. And and that's, to go back to the point you made, you know, about had this been September when they played like this, when you're not winning points, when you're not in a good league position, that's when the arguments about the standard or the discussions about the standards of performance become less and less relevant because it does get down to brass tacks before long and there does come a point where you just have to get results on the board and I don't feel like Leeds are too far away from that. Interesting timing, Phil, because just this minute as we speak, uh, it's been reported by Sky Sports that Lampard is going to get sacked today ah, by Everton, okay. which will um, which will make all of the bottom four having changed their manager this year uh, in the form of Southampton, Everton, assuming that happens, Bournemouth and then Wolves and then going up the table is West Ham. We've kept hold of Moyes. Uh, Leeds with Marsh and then it's Leicester and then Forest. Yeah, so so suddenly actually this becomes a really interesting experiment about what happens when you change your head coach, you know, and uh, I guess it, it'll be shown at the end of the season who's benefited from that. You, you read very often and the stats do kind of show that clubs tend to get a little bounce when they change head coach, but there are an awful lot of instances in which it doesn't make enough of a difference or, or doesn't make as much difference as, as a club would have hoped for. 
but yeah, I'm not I'm not overly surprised that Lampard's going. I think that that has run its course. Um, assuming that does actually happen, that that seems to have run its course, and they are in desperate trouble. Everton. The only thing I would say is that I think the the trouble they're in goes well beyond the dugout um, and well beyond Lampard. I, I don't think anybody over there feels that he's delivered enough with the squad that that he's had. But that's going to be a that's going to be a critical appointment for them because they look in they look in serious peril. And what of Leeds then? Um, three points now, the gap to the bottom place, only a point outside the relegation spots. Where is this season in its wider context? Do you think? Well, I think the next month is going to dictate it very heavily. We have potentially this weird week of Manchester United home and away in the space of five days. But either side of that, it's Nottingham Forest away, it's Southampton, it's Everton. Really good fixtures to go at, fixtures that are going to, you know, are going to cause you sleepless nights if they don't go well, without a doubt. There's no, it doesn't seem much doubt to me at all that the club are trying hard to stick with this and, and are trying hard to to stay committed to the, the plan and the project as they see it. And I think if they have a good month through February, they'll probably they probably will open up the sort of breathing space that they need below them um to the bottom three. But those are games that they have got to take points from. I mean, absolutely. I th- how much you can expect from the, the back back to back Manchester United fixtures, I, I really don't know. But there is just absolutely no way that you can come out of Forest, Southampton and Everton excusing, you know, a, a really poor run of results. Those ones have got to deliver. Because for all, it was a, a good-ish performance, I thought, yesterday. We still only came out of it with a point, and it's another game eaten up where you would hope to get points. So it's rapidly getting to uh, to do or die time, isn't it, I think? It is. I mean, it it's not a bad point, put it that way, against Brentford. It's not. They've had a good season. They've, they've, um, they're in, in good shape. They're going well, without a doubt. They didn't play especially well yesterday, I don't think, but I don't think Leeds allowed them to... And it really should have been in the end. Leeds should have found a way of, of winning that, I think, given the pressure that they had. But yeah, we, we are now coming to that point, I think. And particularly because of the fixtures this this month, you know, if if it's if you're getting into the discussion about six pointers, then some of these surely fall into, into that category. And if you win them, it makes a massive, massive difference. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, we woke up to photographs of uh, Andrei Radrazani in San Francisco. Uh, Phil, he was at the, the 49ers playoff game, which they won against the uh, the Dallas Cowboys, I believe. This is, yeah, I'm pleased you said, I believe, because this is where <laughs> I pretend that I know the ins and outs of the NFL season. But it is crunch time over there for um, your NFL franchises. And they're one game from the Super Bowl, the 49ers. And looking like they, they might just make it. Um, to Super Bowl 57. I did did do my research on that before coming on. People might have read last week, last Tuesday, the piece that we did on Radrazani and 49ers Enterprises, essentially a read on 
where they're at, where this is headed, why it hasn't moved forward yet, what needs to be decided and, and what needs to be discussed. Um, there was talk of Radrazani going over for the previous 49ers game against um, Seattle Seahawks um, a week ago. Um, instead, it's been uh, this one, like you say, the Dallas Cowboys, that he's been there pictured with um, Paragmarati from 49ers Enterprises. It, it essentially still looks to everybody like this is happening and, and this is on the cards and that is still very much the plan. And and the 49ers have been pulling together this um, group of investors in the States uh, to finance the the buyout of Radrazani and, and take full control of Leeds. What seemed apparent to us from speaking to people who are involved in it is that one of the big points of discussion, certainly recently and and, and at the moment, has been what happens if the club go down? You know, what happens if the club are relegated? I think there's confidence at Ellen Road that they will stay up and, you know, the, the feeling that, that they will be okay in the end. But clearly, a club that are worth or valued at around about half a billion pounds in the Premier League are not worth anything like half a billion pounds in the EFL. So the, there would need to be, certainly in, in 49ers Enterprise's eyes, some form of contingency for what happens if, come May, Leeds are no longer a Premier League club, you know, if they are back in the Championship. So that, as we understand it, has been one of the, the key points of, of discussion. Um, but it is still this kind of ticking clock, isn't it, of me, you, everybody else, just waiting for somebody to say, look, well, there, we've got this done, we've got it sorted. Um, it's it's good to go as and when, you know, whether it's announced shortly and, and then formally done in the summer or whether it's just done now with contingencies and, and everything else. That's kind of where we're, where we're at and have been for a while. Yeah, because I've heard over the weekend that they've managed to get past that, the whole relegation issue. But it's one of those things where you think, well, we've been here before, sat on the precipice of a takeover, and then it kind of goes quiet for a bit and you hear nothing. So nice to think about, but you've got to take it with a pinch of salt until confirmation comes through. I think that's it. I, I don't feel like anybody on either side is minded to say that it might all fall apart and they won't get there on the things that they need to, to discuss. It just seems to be the case, as it always is with these deals. And you are talking about huge sums of money. You know, football sometimes skews your appreciation of finance, and because you start talking in billions, you know, way, way beyond millions these days, into into billions for a lot of clubs, you, you feel as if this cash would just get thrown around easily, and and you know everything done quickly. But it, the there will be fine details. There will be stuff that that needs to be needs to be wrapped up. What form it's going to take still isn't clear. You know, like I say, is it going to be the summer? Everybody seems to feel that it'll be the summer at the latest when when the transition actually happens. The option, as we've spoken about many times, the option to buy runs to January 2024, so, so next year. But it always seems from a business and sporting sense to make far more sense, certainly to me and, and my sort of limited knowledge of these things, far more sense to take over in the summer close season than it does mid-season. Um, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, and of course, we've had the Boxing Day interview in Italy, Coriella della Sera, that um, Radrazzani did, where he said, we need more money than I've got. And I'm paraphrasing there, but he was saying, you know, we need we need to kick on. We need more money in the club. And it's all pointing towards that, isn't it? I mean, it was, it was suggested to me over the weekend that actually one of the things that's been taking time is just the level of due diligence that they've got to do, which is, you know, going back through the books and looking at any historic liabilities, things that might be lurking in the accounts from years gone by. You know, there's all sorts. We don't know what's uh, what's there on the club's files, do we? No, for sure. I mean, they, they've spent a lot of time, though, auditing the club, the 49ers. From time to time, you get, you know, groups of staff from the States coming over and, and they've looked through the, the various departments. They've made sure that they know as much as they possibly can about what it is that they'd be taking on and, and what they'd be inheriting. But... 
there have been circumstances in the past, obviously, and I'm thinking primarily of Chilino, where a deal like this is just done. And Chilino said to me more than once, if I ever did due diligence on a club, I'd never buy it. And, you know, the counter argument to that is, well, perhaps you should and should do due diligence and perhaps you shouldn't, you know, when you see what's actually in it. Perhaps and he never, he never struck me as a details man, Phil. Oh, no, no. I think he would say himself that details were, were not his bag at all, or, or certainly not on the front of digging through a club's accounts before um, before actually investing. 49ers Enterprise would be totally different. I mean, you only have to look at the structure and the running of um, the, the 49ers themselves. I should say again that, you know, the, the buyout will not be done specifically by the, the San Francisco 49ers. It is not the NFL franchise who would be buying leads. It's a group of investors who are under the umbrella of the, the 49ers investment arm, 49ers Enterprises. You know, it's a different a different movement. But you look at the way that, that it, it functions over there, that the, the franchise functions, you know, they'll do this very seriously. They'll do it, um, do it to the nth degree because there's a hell of a lot of money involved. So in no small way, they have to. Well, I gather buying out the shares to buy them out 100% based on what they've bought so far and the money they've put in plus what's about to come is going to be somewhere in the ballpark of 300 million quid. So if I had 300 million quid, I wouldn't just hand it over without you know having a good poke around in the uh, in the archive. Well, it depends how much you had beyond 300 million quid. One of the reasons why Abramovich just kind of walked into Chelsea and bought it was because he had so much money that there was no kind of concern about that. But if you if you're trying to model a business that can potentially be profitable, and I know that's incredibly difficult, even with Premier League income, you know, it's not easy to do that if you're investing heavily in players, for example, or or stadium. But if you want a business that washes its face and and you know and acts like a business as opposed to just a, a sort of a plaything where you you throw as much money at it as you can, then you have to be sensible. Yeah, and I guess the the value of the 49ers point of view is going to be taking over a club that's cost them 300 million quid to acquire. They they're going to believe they can add value to it, aren't they? And get that up towards a billion in in just a couple of years, you would imagine they would hope to add capacity to the ground, which in turn then starts to get get the wheels turning, doesn't it, financially? You start to uh, to level up, to borrow a phrase. Well, at the very top level, football doesn't look like going backwards in terms of valuations. You know, the, the valuations of your biggest clubs just seem to be increasing and increasing in the way that television revenue just seems to increase and increase. And there's never any suggestion of the Premier League getting significantly poorer. So, you know, in, in theory, it should be a very good investment. And I think Leeds, has, and this has been a conversation going on for about 20 years now, ever since Leeds were relegated um, back in 2004, they are the one club who are right for development, you know, right for, okay, right for investment. But I think whereas when the Saudis bought into Newcastle, the one thing you were highly unlikely to see there was St. James's Park changing overnight. I think I, I probably said before that the training ground at Newcastle is something that could definitely do with an upgrade. And I think that that would happen. But Leeds are the club with a stadium that could change drastically, where the capacity could increase drastically, where the number of supporters who turn up to games and are able to get into games could change drastically. There's a lot to a lot that can be done here. And I've totally understood why over the years people have looked at it and, and been tempted. Um because there's there's a lot more to be had and and a lot more to be eked out of Leeds than than currently has been um, or is is being eked out of them. So yeah, I think I think it's going to, it will be very interesting when they get through the door, I think, first of all, to see what the priorities are going to be. You know, what are the first things they, they want to do? What is it that, that they want to do differently um, in comparison to the way the club's operated and, and been run for the past four or five years? And I think stadium development will be at the forefront of that. 
You would also argue, though, that, that, that team development is is quite important, wouldn't you? They've got to consistently keep building the team because I think, as we've seen, yeah. it's it's heading in the right direction now and maybe on the evidence of um, the Sunday game against Brentford that just better players in there more and more of them is... It's just an ongoing necessity in the Premier League, isn't it, to keep your head above water? Well, I know that analysis has been done over in the States on Leeds and, and, you know, in the Premier League in general. And I think one of the findings of it was that, you know, and and this sounds very obvious, but the better squad you have, you have, the better you are likely to do. And and a coach can make a big difference, but there are circumstances actually in which everything is dictated or most things are dictated by the quality of, of what's actually in your dressing room. But the thing about Leeds is that they, they have the income to fund the wage bill, you know, the, the general operations. What they need each year and, and in, in each transfer window is the ability um, at shareholder level to be able to to put up the money to do transfers. And and you've seen that. You know, you saw it with Dan James. Money came from, from Radrazani to get that one done. The the Rutter deal that's just gone through, Rutter, I should say, from uh, from <laughs> Hoffman. Yeah. That's going to take a while. Um, I'm always slow in the uptake with uh, with names. Um, that you know, again, that needed the commitment of the 49ers to say we will help get this done now, and we will also accept you know the the future liabilities of the the payments that are going to have to be made, because Leeds don't have so much money that they can afford 40, 50, 60 million pounds commitment on transfers. You don't pay that money up front, but you know that still lands in your it's still there needing to be paid. It's still there as a liability further down the line. And you need the cash to fund the initial instalments too. So I think that's what they will look to do. I, I don't think we're going to suddenly move to a scenario where Leeds jump into the bracket of signing 60, 70, 80 million pound players. Um, but I think they'll be able to go further than they have to this point. Um, and I think it'll it'll mean that, that they're in a position, ideally, um, to be able to keep the squad turning over window to window. And just on the ownership model, it's probably worth just clarifying that 49ers, the uh, NFL team, is owned under the same model. Uh, it's enterprises who own that. And what they do is they set up a fund for each individual purchase, don't they, or each indiv- individual purchase of shares. That's and right. people yeah. and people can buy into that fund, which is where Pete Lowy comes in, for example. You might imagine he's going to feature in what happens going forward. But it's within that vehicle, isn't it? But it is worth stressing that the 49ers themselves are owned under the same model. Yeah, I mean, a few people have said to me that they expect Louis to be one of the biggest investors in this this group. Although, you know, there's not whether or not there will be anything that actually demonstrates the split and whether we'll be able to establish that remains to be seen. I, I think the point is that it's almost certain that there will be people involved in this investment group who are not necessarily involved with the 49ers directly, as in the, the NFL franchise. Uh, but it is basically under the same umbrella. And all that begs the question, Phil, of will this, if they have moved forward now and it seems like we're heading towards a, re- a proper resolution, is it going to free up the funds to get maybe the midfielder, someone else in the market? And where are we with other stuff that's going on in the background? Let's say, you know, Gelhart, uh, there were signposts in... Um, Angus Kinnear's programme notes over the weekend that there will be loans out and you expect that means Gellhart. Yeah, especially the reference in there to Harry Kane, you know, the loans that Harry Kane had before um, he he kind of started to hit it at Tottenham. Um, that felt like a, a nod to Gellhart. Um, Gellhart is still here at the moment. Trained, um, was was there yesterday as well. Swansea seem to be out of that now, out of the running there. Wigan look, uh, are favourites to get him, I think, expect to get him now. Gilhart seems keen to go back there. He he has always always came from Wigan to Leeds in the first place. So very familiar with the club. Knows a lot of people there. I think we'd be comfortable in those surroundings. 
But Sunderland also another side who uh, have been having a look at him and, and would definitely take him if they could. And it's, it feels like a, a big decision that for Gilhart in, in as much as Wigan is struggling in the championship quite badly, you know, and, and he could help that. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be a live run of games for them right to the, to the end. But Sunderland are very much in the mix for the playoffs. And, and I guess it's a question of, you know, beyond just how comfortable you feel at a club, what you want to be involved in, you know, whether you want to be kind of knocking on the door of getting promoted, whether you want to, I guess, potentially have relegation on your record, not that it could in any way be pinned to him, given the, the position leads are in, uh, Wigan are in at the moment. But, you know, he, he has those options. We're, we're totally expecting him to go at this stage. I'm, I'm expecting him to, to end up at Wigan. Midfielder-wise, there hasn't been much progress on that front the last week or so. There hasn't been any any real sign of movement. Um, what does look likely is a move for Diogo Montero, the um, Portuguese defender at, at Savet in, um, in Switzerland. He turns 18 shortly, which will allow Leeds to to make an offer formal and, and to have a go at getting that one done. And I think there's a high likelihood that he will come in before the end of the window. Would you push the boat out if you could for a midfielder in this window, Phil? I think I probably would. But I say that knowing fine well that the numbers have got to stack up and that somebody's got to to pay for it. I've never been in this mindset of just pay whatever, whenever, because it's, you know, in a business sense, it, it doesn't work like that. But if we... If the the Shakira approach there. Uh, yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, if, if we look at Unahi as an example, and it's not a secret that leads like him a lot, I feel like you add him to the squad and the complexion of the squad has changed pretty significantly, especially since last summer. You know, really has. It's undergone a, a massive change um, in personnel and, and the faces in the squad, the names in the squad. But I do accept that he's 20 to 25 million. I do accept that they've just broken the transfer record in signing Ruter. I do accept that they spent £10 million on Verber as well. So already that's a, a kind of £40 million commitment in this window. And I know £40 million looks like smaller and smaller change as the years go on in the Premier League. But it's January and that is, that you know, that's quite a hefty outlay. And nice to have uh, no midweek fixture this week. Uh, ah, but you'll be you'll be sitting watching Accrington, Borden Wood. Absolutely will, yeah, to see who we get um, at the weekend. That's quite a quick turnaround, isn't it? You do wonder how that works from a logistics point of view, you know, getting the tickets to travel and stuff like that. And then not only that, the police arrangements in place. Well, uh, on top of that, I think everybody will be rather relieved that the temperature's picked up because that's already been postponed once, that game. And had it been hit with a frozen pitch again tomorrow and had it been extremely cold this week, you sort of wonder how that would have would have fallen into place. But yeah, you're right. It, it's slightly unusual. And I think this season is it, still slightly feeling the, the knock-on effects of um, you know the disruption that we've had for the last couple of years and, and for Leeds, still feeling the disruption of that month after the, the death of the Queen, when they had no games and and um, Forest and, and Manchester United got moved, as shown by the fact that it you know if there is no replay um, from the the FA Cup fourth round for Leeds or Manchester United, it will be twice in five days that they play each other, which is going to be quite the spectacle. <laughs> yeah, I talk about policing for that. My word, who do you fancy then? Do you want Boreham Woods or Accrington in this one? Boreham Woods, the kind of more fun one, isn't it? I think because it's it, I, I guess from your point of view. It'd be proper, you know, non-league. Sometimes you get like a school desk, don't you, to work off when you go to these, yeah. these smaller grounds. Not used to the, uh, gonna, the the riches and plush surroundings of the Premier League. I'm going to write later this week about the stories from Leeds' various cup upsets because it's been kind of weird and wonderful run in the FA Cup. They've lost at some odd places and, and you know, in, in fairly embarrassing fashion as well. But 
watching the Cardiff game last week, the, the replay, and the strength of the side that Marsh put out and the way they went at it, it felt as if there was actually some real appetite for the competition this season. And I'm not going to jinx it by saying that they will beat Accrington or Boreham Wood, but I would be staggered to get to either of those grounds and find, for example, the sort of lineup that Monk, Gary Monk played at Sutton United or the sort of lineup that Thomas Christensen played at Newport County. I think at the very least they will they'll be sensible about it. I think at the very least Marsh will try and maximise the chances of of going through. Um, and I think I was saying I was chatting to a Leeds fan last week who's put money on Leeds to win the FA Cup, and the rationale was, well, I think we'll go through the fourth round, and from there, you know, you just got to take your chances with the draw, really, haven't you? No, absolutely. And I guess it brings us back around to uh, Jorginho Ruta again as well. And, and Marsh has made it clear in his post match that Ruta will feature against whoever it is that we play. At the, yes. uh, at the weekend. It's an interesting way to make your debut properly, isn't it, that one? Yeah, welcome to Boreham Wood. I, I was um, I was seeing Rooter on the TV coverage yesterday as we were sat in the press box. <laughs> Freezing. Um, that, big blank, that big blanket over him. And I thought, bless him, he's managed to move and sit in the dugout at Ellen Road for the first time. The coldest, coldest day of the year. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him. I'm also looking forward to seeing exactly how Marsh uses him because at the moment, I can only imagine it was it it was more of a kind of four two three one again yesterday, but I can only imagine that Ruta to begin with, if he's not playing as a slightly withdrawn centre forward, that he's going to have to play out wide because I don't see Marsh moving Rodrigo out of this team, and for now I also don't see Bamford getting into it. Um, for, certainly for for league games, well, while Rodrigo is playing the way that he is. He, it was quite hard for Rodrigo to get into yesterday's match, but I still felt like when he was on the ball. You know, he was he was if he was kind of effective and he was he was kind of bright and intelligent in, in what he was doing. And there's going to be an interesting discussion coming around with him soon because you know he's he's not far from being into the last year of his contract. And and having felt for a long time like this one just wasn't gonna work and, and didn't feel like it, it was going anywhere, you sort of wonder what, what leads are want to do. Well, you and I will get back together along with Michael uh, from the square ball towards the back end of this week when we know who we're gonna be facing in the FA Cup. We'll we'll preview that one properly and we'll have a probably a deeper dive into the destination that you are you are bound for at the weekend I presume you'll be yes. going to it whichever place it's in yeah absolutely I mean Accrington you know Accrington Football League Club I've uh, been there before Bournemouth would be um, new surroundings for me um, and as I say I can't you know I think of Bournemouth I think of Heston and I think mm, let's go Accrington instead <laughs> all right then. you said you, you, you said Bournemouth was going to be fun I'll hold that to you after the weekend <laughs> And it's on TV as well. What could possibly go wrong from a Leeds United <laughs> point of view? No, it, I, don't, I don't know why, but it feels like, you know, for all that Marsh has taken criticism for this season, that we've we've shed that skin a little bit. I don't know. I know I know it was a bit touch and go at Cardiff, but it feels like we are being a bit more, and I'm, I've got a tempting fate now, but a bit more grown up about the FA Cup now these days. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fair observation. And it might be that the, the initial game at Cardiff has helped in that respect because I know they had injuries and they were missing an awful lot of players but it wasn't a particularly strong lineup and it wasn't a particularly balanced lineup and you know if that's if that's helped you know Marsh and, and other people to sort of realize that actually you're far better just going strong in this unless you unless you just want to get out of it and you don't want any part in the competition if you do actually want to make progress you've got to treat it as you would do premier league games you know you've you've got to be serious about it 
And Marsh, you know, Marsh keeps saying we 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 do genuinely want a cup run. I think they want to go far in this, and I think we'd all be delighted if they did because none of us have had anything like enough, you know, enough enjoyment from the cups over the years. It's been a, a non-event more often than not, so it, it would be good. Yeah, we'll get into the fourth round chat proper then when we return. Uh, for the Friday edition. A reminder, the show is twice a week, Monday and Friday, until the middle of March, uh, and then it's going to revert to to once weekly. But we'll get back together towards the end of the week, Phil. Look forward to that one. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for The Athletic. We'll speak to you later in the week. The Phil Hay Show. 